be seated. And if you have a Bible with you, you want to get that out and get it open to Genesis 1, because today we begin a new series in that book, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. If you're brand new to Desert Springs Church, this is a great week for you to be here. We're starting this new series. And if you're brand new to the Bible, brand new to Christianity perhaps, well, this is also a great week for you to be here as we start this series again in the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginning. It's the very first word of the Greek and Latin translations, Genesis. So it is titled what it is. It's a book about the beginning. It's a book really of beginnings, plural. It tells the story of the beginning of the world, but it also tells the story of the beginnings of the Israelite people. There are two unequal halves to Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11 gives us stories of God's interaction with the whole world. And then Genesis 12 to 50 give us stories of God's interaction with one specific extended family, Abraham and his offspring. But again, today we begin with the beginning of the beginning, the first 25 verses of Genesis 1, which will lead us to the middle of the sixth day of creation. We'll leave the, the rest of the sixth day for next week since it's so important. Look out on your Bibles with me as I read from Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. And fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night 
and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Well, Genesis was written by Moses, along with the other four books of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five, five books. These are the first five books of our Bibles. And really, we can think of them not as five books, but as one major work, one major book with five significant parts. It was compiled sometime before Moses' death, before the Israelites were to enter the promised land. And that's not insignificant. The first intended audience always has to be kept in mind when we come to a biblical text. And this text was written down especially to and for those Israelites who had come up out of Egypt a generation before. They had been rescued by God who saved them through many signs and wonders, not least the parting of the Red Sea. They had journeyed through the wilderness now for a whole generation, God leading them with fire. God providing for them bread which just fell to the ground and water that would spring up out of a rock. And yet they had repeatedly sinned against this God. They had put him to the test. God judged many of them unto their death. But now they were nearing the time when Moses would die and Joshua would lead them into the promised land. And all of that has relevance for what Genesis says and for how we understand it and apply it even today. It's not to say that Genesis doesn't have anything relevant to say to 21st century Americans. In fact, we'll see in weeks ahead that the book of Genesis is quite relevant to our times. But we'll see how it applies to us today better if we first sufficiently understand how it served them in that first audience. I believe that Moses' intent with the text of Genesis was pastoral and theological and worshipful. Not to stir up controversy, not to cause divisions, nor to satisfy curiosities, not least those curiosities that would be reserved for a more scientific generation only in sometimes our own lifetime. You see, when many of us come to Genesis 1, we we immediately think of those controversies that we find here. The age of the earth, the question of evolution, 
How much of the story is literal and how much of it is figurative? Whether the days of creation are literal 24-hour periods. And where are the dinosaurs in all this? How do they fit in? Such controversies are often related to the broader question of the role of science in interpreting the Bible. How do science and the Bible relate? Well, that question has produced a few different approaches over the years. Let me enumerate a few of them for you. One I would call science dismissing scripture. This is the approach of the philosophical materialists and naturalists, the atheists who would rather make fun of God's word than to give it any sense of hearing whatsoever. But secondly, there's another approach, I might call it science mythologizing scripture. And this is for progressive Christians who still want to cherish the Bible, perhaps for nostalgic reasons. But they believe that science has the answers to the origins of life. And they believe that the Bible has one of many creation myths in, put to us in a purely poetic and symbolic way. But then there's a third approach. I would call it reading science into scripture and reading a certain approach to science into scripture. And this is the approach of certain Christian conservative scientists who feel comfortable writing commentaries on Genesis. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. They seek to show us all the science that's actually there, they say. Well, some of those approaches are better than others, but I'd suggest that none of them sufficiently take the text of Genesis on its own terms. I think there's a better approach to Genesis which gives more attention to the historical context, which seeks to understand the needs of the first hearers of Genesis, which takes serious the explicit subject matter of the book of Genesis, namely God. A better approach, which I think takes Moses' intentions, that it is pastoral and theological and worshipful in its aim. So I invite you to join me in trying to come to Genesis with some fresh eyes. I invite you with me to try to take some of your questions, controversies, or curiosities and maybe put them in your pocket for just a bit. And to be open to the possibility that Genesis may not answer all of your questions. It may not speak to all of our controversies and curiosities. We want to come to God's word every week. In any passage, we want to come to God's word taking the text on its own terms. Letting it speak for itself. Not coming with our agenda, but seeking to put ourselves under God's agenda to hear what he has to say. So, let's get after it. There could be a number of ways to go about teaching this passage. Different ways of outlining it. What came to me this week is to ask four questions from the text and to make three observations about the text. Four questions. Let's start with the first, when. When, verse 1 answers, in the beginning. In the beginning. The beginning of what? 
Well, the beginning of everything. The beginning of all that we know to be. The beginning of time. The beginning of the beginning. There are other books of the Bible that also begin with something like in the beginning. Like Mark and John and Hebrews and others. They're echoing Genesis. But this is the real the beginning. This is the beginning of the beginning. And from that very first word in Hebrew, or three words in our English Bibles, in the beginning, we should be invited into wonder and awe and, and even mystery and hence humility. There are places in the Bible that give us explicitly a time marker. Isaiah 6.1, this is when King Uzziah died. It was that year. We know what year that was. Well, Genesis 1.1 doesn't give us that. It doesn't. It doesn't give us a date, even though God could have. It simply indicates that there was a beginning. It's certain. It's clear. But it invites humility. It maintains mystery. Regardless of when, the more important thing is the that of what it says. That there was a beginning. There was a time when there was no beginning yet. And then... A beginning. That's when. The second question is who? And the next word in verse 1 answers it. God. God. In the beginning, God. So in the beginning, and of course eternally before that, according to other parts of the Bible, there was God. You think of Moses' psalm, Psalm 90. It puts it so beautifully. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In the beginning, God tells us that God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. It boggles the human mind to consider it. But it's true, God is actually, in his essence, he is outside of time. He's not bound to time like you and I are. That's all we know. Not him. He stepped into time. He created time. He involves himself in this thing we experience of a timeline. But this God is eternal, beyond time. And that God is a triune God, we learn from elsewhere in Scripture. A triune God. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the three persons are God, but together they don't make up three gods. One God. Jesus alludes to this when he prays to his Father in John 17 about the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This triune God. Three persons sharing in relationship and will. And Jesus is part of that who. And I'll show you some more about him later on. But the third question is what? The next line in verse 1 tells us the what created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. He created. There was nothing. And then there was something. Contra Carl Sagan, who famously said that the cosmos is all there is, has been, and will be. The Bible insists that there was a beginning for matter, 
for cosmos. And it was God who was there. He was the one who was before the beginning. And he created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, that's the sky and beyond. The earth, that's the surface and below. But together, it's not just those two parts. It's the whole thing. It's everything in between. Together, the heavens and the earth mean all of creation, everything, all that is and all that is in them. God created it all. So verse 1 is a summary statement. It's an introduction to what follows. It's likely not the first step of creation, but it's summarizing the whole of the creational events that really spread all the way into chapter 2. Verse 1 gives us a when, a who, a what. A fourth question, how? Well, that's what verses 2 and following answer. But it starts with verse 2, which is a bit of a conundrum to many of us. So look down, read it with me again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there's some debate about timing here. Some would consider verse 2 as a creative act by God that precedes what is technically day 1. And then a few scholars would consider verse 2 as actually part of day 1. What we don't want to say, what we can't say, is that whatever the substance of verse 2 is, that that's some sort of pre-creational matter, as if God was like wandering around in space that isn't space yet, and he came across a big lump of Play-Doh, and he said, well, this is a mess, but I think I can make something of it. No, it's not that. Whatever it is, God made it, and yet it is without form and void. It's a curious phrase. It's in Jeremiah 4, verse 23. You can read that later if you want. I think the most helpful um, clue as to what it means here in Genesis 1, verse 2, is that the rest of the creation account will go on to describe God forming certain things, then filling certain things. He forms certain things, and then he fills those certain things. Well, our mystery phrase, without form and void, I think, is related to that. The earth is without form and void. He hasn't yet formed it. He hasn't yet filled it. It is created, yes, but apparently this is the God-made raw materials that he will then form and fill. Darkness was over the face of the deep of this earth. There was darkness. Of course there was darkness because there wasn't yet light. But there was water. That's what the deep refers to. And yet the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit? I think the ESV is right to capitalize Spirit. This is the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This isn't wind. This isn't breath. Even though the Hebrew can be translated any of those, wind, breath, or spirit, 
But this is not a thing. This is a person and a divine person, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is bird-like imagery. It's found in Deuteronomy 32. Like an eagle, God says, that flutters, that's the word, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings. That's how God cares for his people. And it's like what the Spirit was doing at the very dawn of creation. Like a mama eagle over her young, the Spirit was hovering, caring, warming, agitating in a good way, stirring, about to act. It's a beautiful picture. And it conjures up anticipation. Well, what's next? What comes after this? There's drama. Well, let's look. What comes after this? Let me walk us through the six creation days just briefly. If you would, look down in your Bible and let your eyes catch these sections, these days, as I briefly refer to them. Notice that day one, verses three to five, there God creates light. Now we learn from day four that this light of day one isn't yet the sun and the moon and the stars. That comes on day four. And many of us want to quickly ask, even little kids legitimately ask, wait, how, how, is, there, how is there light without a sun? What's going on here? How did God do this? But that misses the whole point, right? God's doing all kinds of things that are unthinkable and un unimaginable. He's creating everything out of nothing. He can certainly make a temporary light, perhaps from his own very presence, that fills his creation until he makes the more permanent structures of sun and moon on day four. Nevertheless, day one, there is light and there is darkness and they are separated. On day two, verses six to eight, God separates waters, waters from above and waters below. He puts some of the water on the earth in the clouds, which will later become rain, you probably know. And a lot of the water is on the surface of the earth, and it makes lakes and rivers and oceans. And what's in between these two bodies of water is called expanse. It doesn't have to be more technical than that. It's just the space between. Day 3, verses 9 to 13, there God separates land from water. We call the land continents these days, and we call the waters oceans. Well, God did that. We also learn on day 3 that God creates vegetation, plants, trees, seeds. He only gives us some representative trees and plants here. Of course, this isn't an exhaustive catalog of all the plant species and varieties that would ever be. But here they are. He's created them here. Then day four, verses 14 to 19. There, God creates these lights, plural. A greater light for the day, that's the sun. A lesser light for the night, that's the moon. But also the stars. You think of how huge stars are and how many there are and how far away they are and the way it's described here like it's a footnote or a parenthesis and the stars. like And the stars are God's 
creative power and design and beauty and grandeur. Just so impressive. Notice the, the lights, these lights of sun and moon and stars, they mark out days and seasons and years. God has put the calendar into his creation. On day 5, verses 20 to 23, he fills the sea with sea creatures and he fills the sky with birds. And he makes them reproduce. He blesses them, verse 22, and calls them to be fruitful and to multiply. Our God is so teeming with life that he creates life and puts life within life so that it propagates. In day 6, verses 24 to 25, before creating man and woman in his own image, he creates the land creatures. Great beasts and little bugs. Reminds me of that old hymn that we teach our kids. All things bright and beautiful. All things great and small. All things wise and wonderful. T'was God that made them all. Now what I didn't point out yet, which you may know to be looking for and to be taking note of as you read through the creation days of Genesis is that there's a pattern. There's repetition. Each day is different, but similar. And God said, that's how they all begin, let there be this thing or that thing. And there was, there's a statement, there, there it was. Or sometimes it's put, and it was so. And then often God calls Something, he names it, and then it says he saw that it was good, and then they all end the same, and there was evening and morning the first day, second day, third day. There are about six to seven repeated components in each of them. Not all the components are in all of them, but all of them have most of them. Also, remember that I said that there's that general pattern of God first forming things and then filling things here's how it works more specifically days one through three god is forming lights and land and waters and fields in days four through six god is filling those very things with more light and with creatures of the sea and on land which means then when you look more carefully that there's this correspondence between pairs. So one and four correspond. Two and five correspond. Three and six correspond. What was formed in day one is filled in day four. What was formed in day two is filled in day five. What was formed in day three is filled in day six. And in case you can't see it yet, days three and six have an added component of correspondence because in those Two things happen. Two big things happen. Your Bible probably has two paragraphs for days three and six. And that's correct. Now, do you see what this does? Do you see what this does? The literary devices force the eye to zoom out, to zoom in, to compare, to contrast, to see the whole and then the parts and then the whole. It causes me to stand in awe. Which leads me then to three observations. 
three observations. The first is that this is a stylized historical narrative. Stylized. I put that in quotes on purpose. I got that word from John Salehammer, an Old Testament scholar. It's a word that's a little clumsy, but I think it's useful. It's an unusual word for an unusual kind of literature. What is Genesis 1? What kind of literature is this? Well, it's not poetry. We can't go that far. This is not the Hebrew parallelism that you find in, say, the Psalms. Nor is it the sci-fi crazy stuff you find in Revelation. It's historical. Genesis 1 is historical. It's meant to convey what happened. And I don't think it's meant to deceive us. And I don't think it's written in some sort of code. But it is stylized history. It's not the same kind of history telling that you find in Exodus or 1 Samuel. There's a beauty and artfulness that produces patience and awe and worship. When our God chose to reveal his creative acts at the beginning of time, he didn't give us merely a drawing. He didn't give us either a table, a spreadsheet, a graph, numbers, he painted a literary picture with literary devices that make us slow down our reading, that make us ponder and look around and study, which should induce wonder and awe and worship. Our God could have done it all at once. One word, one second, all of creation. Boom! And he didn't. If you think these days are literally 24-hour days, you still have this segment of time between each of these creative acts where God chose to spread this out, apparently. He wants us to, to see. He wants us to wait. He wants us to look around. He wants us to wonder and worship. And yet I know some of us are stubborn. We still are wondering, though, what about those Days and are they 24 hours? And are you really just going to sweep this under the rug, Ryan? Are you really going to say, ah, pay no attention to that over there? Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Well, let's talk about those 24 hour days, or are they? The Hebrew word yom, the word translated day, most often means a, a literal 24-hour day, especially when a number is put with it, like fourth day. But the Hebrew word yom can be translated season or time or era. It's often translated in our Bibles when, like when this happened. That's yom. It can sometimes be translated day, but it's clearly referring to something longer than a 24-hour period. And doesn't our English word day work like that? Sometimes it means yesterday, the 24-hour period called Saturday. And sometimes the kids say these days, back in the day. 
And they don't mean a 24-hour period. They mean when I was a kid or when Ben Franklin was around. So, are the days of Genesis 1 literal 24-hour days or periods of time? Could they possibly have spans of time between them? My answer to you is, I don't know. And then you might say, okay, well then what about the other big question and related question oftentimes of whether the earth is old or whether the earth is young? If the earth is old, we're talking millions and billions. And if it's young, we're talking six to 10,000 years. How old do I think the world is? Do you want me to tell you how old the world is? I don't know. I don't know. I bring up these two points the length of the days, the age of the earth, only to point out that good and solid, faithful Christians can and have taken different positions on those matters. I respect young earth theologians who think the days are 24-hour periods. Scholars like Al Mohler and pastors like John MacArthur and Kevin DeYoung but I also respect old earth pastors and scholars like J.I. Packer and Don Carson and B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and also the ones that were before the writing of Darwin's Origin of Species like Spurgeon and Augustine. Again, I bring up the age of the earth and whether the creation days are literal 24-hour periods only to mention that good Christians can and have differed on those things and those shouldn't be matters that divide a church or cause any trouble for a community group discussion this week. Now having said that, let me remind you again that the first audience and the primary purpose of the book should at least catch our attention here. Can you imagine the Israelites on the precipice of the promised land hearing Moses read these words for the first time and them being tempted to interrupt him? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You talking young earth or old earth? Because I got a problem if it's one or the other. No. I mean, these are people who are putting this in our hearts. They are falling on their faces. This is what they need. But there is something that they would have in the back of their minds that you might not know about as they're hearing this Genesis account read to them for the very first time. No doubt they would be thinking, it sounds pretty similar because there are other ancient Near East creation stories or myths that follow a similar pattern to our own. Now you might say that sounds liberal. That sounds scary. I don't even want to entertain that. But it's just a fact. Once you dig into the texts and compare and contrast them, there's no denying that. There's no denying that our biblical creation record follows a similar pattern and uses similar imagery as the creation myths that preceded Israel's account. Preceded. You can't say, well, the nations got theirs from us. No, theirs were before, most likely, in the case of Egypt and Mesopotamia and Babylon and, and Canaan. So there are similarities, but there are also important differences with our 
account. And the differences are the key. Remember, the Israelites, they've come out of Egypt. They've been there for generations. They were around Egyptian stories. They knew them, no doubt. They were surely familiar with the Egyptian alternative creation accounts. They were also about to enter Canaan. A land, yes, flowing with milk and honey, but a land flowing with Canaanites and Canaanite gods with Canaanite creation stories. So God, through Moses, accommodates his creation account to include the similarities in order to stress the differences. The creation myths of the pagan nations described the birth or the origin of many gods. They would often begin with a genealogy of a god to show where he or she came from. They would often include a story of a battle between two gods, showing which one emerged as the more powerful. Any of those gods, of course, would be attached to elements of creation. The god of clouds, the god of the sea, the god of the land. Our account is similar, stylistically, on purpose, but it tells a different story. It tells a story of a God who has no beginning. He has no daddy. He doesn't come from somewhere. He doesn't battle another God and uh, out arrive on the other side victorious. He's always been victorious and he's never had any rivals. He's not attached to creation. He's over his creation. He creates creation. It's all beautiful. That's all part of it being stylized historical narrative. And now more quickly, two more things. Secondly, it teaches us much about creation. The Genesis 1 account doesn't teach us everything about creation, but it teaches us much about creation. Shows us order and purpose, design, intricacies and interdependedness. Things are separate and yet related. Five times it says God separates these things. Ten times it says that God made things according to their kind. He categorized, he named, he distinguishes, he has purposes in this all. There's a, a repeated pattern of two-ness throughout Genesis 1. There are pairs. They complement the earth and the sky, the land, the sea, the moon, the sun, the, the, the light, the darkness. And we'll see in weeks ahead, male and female. It's God's design that there's two-ness written into his creation order. And all this is good. It's good seven times. In Genesis 1, we read that it was good. God saw that it was good, which means he's pleased in it. Dare we say he's impressed by it. There's beauty in it all. There's life and reproduction there's expansiveness. It's things big and small. It's cockroaches and the furthest star. And all this should invite, should, should summons us 
into childhood wonder. For some, it should mean a deep scientific investigation. The Bible's not against science, even though at times it's not doing science. It's not against science. Here's the welcome mat. You want to just buy a telescope? Well, Genesis 1 gives you the theological framework and maybe even some good motivation for doing so. It's calling us to watch and to wonder. Clyde Kilby was a literature professor at Wheaton College when John Piper was there. So John Piper often tells the story of hearing one of Kilby's lectures in 1976 where he said many things good, but this is what we need attention to. He said, at least once every day I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I a consciousness with a conscience am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis called the magical, terrifying, ecstatic existence. Creation teaches us, sorry, Genesis 1 teaches us much about creation and it invites us to worship, which leads to the third thing under this heading. It teaches us much about God. It's about God. God is referenced 35 times in the first 35 verses of Genesis. He's the actor He's the only one that steps on the scene. He's the mover and shaker. He's the subject of nearly every sentence. So you'd miss the Sunday school question if you didn't answer God when it's put before you. What is Genesis 1 about? Not about cosmology, not about microbiology. It's about God. It's about God. And that creation order and the God of creation behind it should produce in us confidence and awe and obedience and worship. God is shown in his creation. No, he's not his creation. No, his creation is not divine, but his creation reflects him. It says something about him. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, creation is pouring out speech or information that God is there and he's powerful and he's good, that he's eternal, that he's self existent. He needs nothing. He is supreme. He has no rivals. He is singular. He has infinite power. This God speaks creation into existence. He speaks that into existence and it's done. He said, let there be and it was. The psalm we started with this morning, Psalm 33, in our call to worship, points to this fact. The word of the Lord created the heavens. It's by the breath of his mouth that he made all their host. 
So let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. As God speaks. And so he's personal. He's not just powerful, but he speaks. We'll see this more next week. He relates. He reveals. He communicates. He's good. If his creation is good, 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 how good is our God who made it all? He's wise. He's awesome. In Job 26, Job recounts different ways in which God's providence and his power in creation have been shown. Things like thunder and lightning and earthquakes and that. And he says, these are just the fringes of his ways. And you say, well, what about cataclysms then? If God made everything good and ordered, what about earthquakes and tidal waves? Well, a couple things could be said from the Bible. Number one, what kind of God do you think this is? He didn't just make kittens. He's a big God. And yet... Another thing the Bible would tell us is that there was a fall. This isn't the rest of the story. It's the beginning of the story. Stick with us. If this is all new to you, we'll get to Genesis 3 in some weeks ahead. We'll find out what's wrong with this world. And this will comfort us all the more that God is still the creator. He is still good. He is Sovereign overall. In fact, he has installed his son as the ruler over it all, who actually was back there at the beginning as well. We mentioned the Spirit's activity in verse 2. Where's Jesus? Well, John 1 told us that uh, without him, Christ, nothing was made that was made. And Colossians 1 tells us that it's by him, Jesus specifically, that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. They were created through him and, get this, for him, for his glory. That's why we sang earlier that Christ is all. He's at the end of our Bibles. He's the pinnacle of our Bibles at the cross in resurrection. He is who we see and apprehend in conversion. So think of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That the same God who said, light, shine out of darkness in the first of days. It's that God who shines in our hearts to show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God which shines on the face of Christ. It's all about him. And we will see the fingerprints of Jesus and his handiwork all through the book of Genesis. But we sure can't miss it in its opening act, in its first chapter, in its opening words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That changes everything. It's not the only thing we know, especially as Christians. It's not the only thing we have to cling to. And at times we need to look ahead to a whole new creation that's still to come. But at times we need to just get back to basics. 
just get back to the beginning. God made all this. He's the creator. He's the only God. Our God is the only God. He has no rivals. He's not threatened by anything. He made this world with design and creativity, out of power and with beauty. He's got this. He's got this. This is my Father's world. Oh, I rest me in the thought of, of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. That's still true today. It will be forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we stand in awe of your manifold works. We thank you for creation. We thank you even more for your word, which interprets creation for us and tells us so much more. We thank you, Lord, for what your word and as a reflection of your character, your creation shows us about you. You indeed are good, and you are our God, and you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' strong and saving name. Amen.